0: Now, I love the verses that we just read um, in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. And I think where we need to begin as we um, seek to understand the message of this text is every single one of us needs to know that these verses that we just read are addressed to Christians. I mean, you saw there in verse 19, right, that Paul... or I gave that away. I believe that Paul wrote Hebrews. But that the author of the book of Hebrews, that he opens this section of verses with the words, therefore, brethren, or brothers. Now, the author of the book of Hebrews, back in chapter 3, verse 1, he addresses this letter to the holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. So he wrote to Christians. And the reason why I bring this up is, To emphasize the point that as we're listening to this message, as we're reading through these verses, that none of us lose the connection, the personal connection to the things that are here on this page. Because everything that is said applies not only to our brothers and sisters that have gone before us, who lived, who followed Jesus 2,000 years ago in the 1st century A.D., but it also applies to every single one of us here in the 21st century A.D. If you believe in Christ, if you're trusting in him as your Savior, if you've pledged your allegiance to King Jesus, then these words are addressed to you. These words are addressed to me. The second thing that we need to understand by way of introduction is not only are these words addressed to Christians, but the tone of it, the content of it. These words are instructive. The words of Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 through 25 are instructive. And we see that in two words. Let us. Now those two words are worth underlining, highlighting, putting an asterisk next to. Because those two words, let us, and they show up three times in this section, those words are a call to personal action. And what these verses are calling us to are three things. First, Hebrews chapter 10, these verses in 19 through 25, they call us to draw near. We saw that in verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full Assurance of faith. Now, this command deals with our conduct towards God. And the theme of this command is faith towards God. It's vertical. But there's another call. Hold fast. We see that in verse 23. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Now, the first deals with our conduct towards God. This deals with our conduct towards the world. The theme of this command is hope, a hope that is exhibited before the world. And then there's there's a third command. There's a third call. It's stir up. We see that in verse 24. The author says, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Now, this command deals with our conduct toward the church. The theme is love demonstrated toward one another. And so understanding that these words are written to you and me, They have personal application for you and me, and also that they're instructive. It is a call, a call to draw near, a call to hold fast, a call to stir up. I'd like us to spend some time this morning just really focusing on these three commands so that you and I will know the kind of life that God wants us to be living inside these four walls as believers but also outside these four walls as people that are on mission for King Jesus, all right? So here we go, number one, draw near. Look at verses 19 through 22. We read, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God. Let's stop there before we get to verse 22. Now, I want you to see that this set of words, they open up with therefore. Now, you guys have been studying the Bible long enough to know and to recognize that whenever you come to the word therefore, that is an important word. It's a connector word. And in this case, this word therefore connects the previous thought with the present one. Now, up until verses 19 through 21, the content of the book of Hebrews has pretty much been doctrinal. In chapters 1 through 10 of the book of Hebrews, it teaches us something about Jesus. The author has been emphasizing that Jesus is the better sacrifice. Jesus is the better high priest. Doctrine simply means teaching. And here he's been teaching us something about Christ, something about who he is and what he does. Now here, beginning in verse 19, verses 19 through 21, try to imagine these verses like the hinge of a door. Because these words that we just read, they are now going to swing us, the students, the author, or the, the audience of the book of Hebrews, it's going to swing us now from doctrine into application. So up until this point, we've been learning about Jesus. The better sacrifice, the better high priest. Now, coming here to verses 19 through 21, it's now going to swing us into the application. So what do we do now with what we've learned about Jesus? What does that mean for us practically now, knowing that Jesus is the better sacrifice and the better high priest? And so that means from this point on, to the end of the book of Hebrews in chapter 13, it's application. It's practical. So, this is an important section in the book of Hebrews. And before he gets into the application, that hinge, what's swinging us from the previous thought into the present one are two facts. The author takes everything that he just told us in chapters 1 through 10 and he summarizes it in verses 19 through 21 in order to swing us into the application of it. And the first thing the author wants us to be reminded of before we start applying this truth is that we have access we have access. In verse 19, he says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest. The holiest. That's a, that's a big word. That's a key word. The holiest. What the author has in mind is this room, the most significant, the most sacred room in the Old Testament tabernacle and temple." In Hebrews chapter 9 verse 3 this room called the holiest is called the holiest of all. In Hebrews chapter 9 verse 12 it's called the most holy place. Now this room is more most often referred to as the holy of holies. We've all heard that term, right? The holy of holies. Now the reason why the holy of holies was the most significant, the most sacred room It's because God appeared in it. Think about that. In Leviticus chapter 16 verse 2, the Bible tells us this small room that was located in the tabernacle, a tent, a tent in the desert, a tent in a place called Shiloh for 400 years, this tent that represented God's house on planet Earth. God would fill that room. His presence would be there and then later when the tent gave way to a building constructed by King Solomon. There in the Holy of Holies, the most sacred room, God's glory would fill that room. It was the most sacred, not only the most sacred room in the building, but it was the most sacred spot on planet Earth. God would make his presence known there in the holy of holies now when the author is talking about the holy of holies here it's really important for us to not lose this point and that is that he is not talking necessarily about the earthly tabernacle and the earthly temple because what was constructed on earth was merely a shadow The tabernacle that was in the desert and the temple that was in Jerusalem, though they were tangible, constructed buildings, those buildings actually represented something bigger and greater. And that is the true temple that's in heaven. So what we read about in the Old Testament The tabernacle that Moses constructed, the temple that King Solomon had built, those were just shadows. But what was casting the shadow was the substance, the temple, the Mm -hmm. real holy of holies that's in heaven. And this is what the author has in mind. And here he makes this radical, mind-bending statement that you and I, people made of flesh and blood, that you and I have now been given direct access, not into the room that is the shadow of the substance, but the substance itself. We have direct access into the holy of holies. Now, the fact that he says that we have boldness to enter into that place, that for a Jew was a mind-bending concept. Because in the Old Testament, there was no direct access into the Holy of Holies, right? Because we understand that sin separates sinners from God. And you remember that at the entrance of the Holy of Holies, separating the holy place and the Holy of Holies, there was a thick veil that was hanging from ceiling to floor. And that veil kept and shut sinners out from entering into the Holy of Holies. The message was clear. People do not have direct access into God's presence. But what the author is celebrating here is something that happened centuries later after the tabernacle and the temple was built. You guys remember there on Calvary, on Golgotha, when Jesus Christ was hanging on the cross and he paid the ransom for our redemption and he completed the work for our salvation. And Christ said those words It is finished and he gave up his spirit and the bible tells us that when jesus died that the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom not bottom to top i mean the message was clear god was doing the tearing god was making the access possible not man and i and i and just with my imaginative mind i just i i can i can picture god just holding on to the corners of that veil just waiting with anticipation, expectation for his son to say, it is finished. And the moment he says the father does what he's always wanted to do, to tear that veil right down the middle and to open it up and to give people direct access into his presence. For centuries he couldn't do that. Because the blood of bulls and goats weren't sufficient or sufficient enough to give God license to tear that veil wide open. For centuries, the Father has been waiting for his son to die in the place, Your place, my place is our sacrifice. And the moment that happened, that veil was torn. Wow. And because of that, the Bible says that we have access to enter into the Holy of Holies with boldness. Listen, there was only one person that was allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies, and that was only once a year. And it was a guy by the, that, was, that, that carried the title of high priest. But the thing is, as the high priest had the privilege to enter into the Holy of Holies, this room, and there was, there was only one piece of furniture in this room, it's called the Ark of the Covenant. And we all know the Ark of the Covenant, right? Thanks to Indiana Jones, right? The Ark of the Covenant, that box, that box made of acacia wood overlaid with gold. And that lid, that lid, that cover that's called the mercy seat. And on top of that lid, you have the two cherubims. Face down, the angel's wings spread out, touching each other. And inside that Ark of the Covenant, there was the Ten Commandments and the jar of manna and the, the, the rod of Aaron that had budded. All there. And that represented God's presence as God's glory would fill that place. But as the high priest would enter in once a year, and he had to enter in with blood, he did not enter in with boldness he entered in with fear and trembling because if, he, if his sin problem wasn't dealt with, the moment he stepped foot behind that veil, God would kill him. You remember this, what happened to the sons of Aaron, right? Nadab and Abihu, there in Leviticus chapter 10. They approached God the wrong way. So what happened? God caused fire to come out and consume them wow now the author is talking to you and me and saying guess what not only has access been made but you and I we enter in with boldness another way to translate that Greek word that's that we have in English boldness is cheerful or happy courage That means that we have the privilege right now in this place to enter into God's presence with a smile on our faces. And what makes it possible, verse 19 tells us, was the blood of Jesus, that sacrificial atoning blood of Christ. And so he says in verses 19 through 20, having boldness to enter the holiest not only by the blood of Jesus but also by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. We have access because that veil was a shadow. That veil that that God tore from top to bottom, the author to the book of Hebrews is now telling us that that veil, that curtain was a shadow of Jesus himself. And you remember Jesus said, I am the door. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And the reason why we have the assurance of direct access is because the access point into God's presence is Christ himself. And Christ is our Redeemer. Christ is our Savior. And Christ himself is our access. And so the author to the book of Hebrews, he reminds us, you have access. But secondly, not only does he say, check out the access, but secondly, check out our advocate. We have an advocate. In verse 21, he says, in having a high priest over the house of God. Now, in the Old Testament, the high priest was an ordained minister who represented God before the people, and he represented the people to God. And in the Old Testament, all of the high priests, like the tabernacle, like the temple, they were just shadows of the one true, real high priest, Jesus Christ. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, it tells us concerning Jesus that he is the high priest over the house of God. That's you, that's me. It means that we have A divine, eternal advocate who stands for us, mediates for us, stands representing us. And he, his eternal life, is our eternal guarantee. That not only do we have direct access to the Holy of Holies now, but we will have direct access into the Holy of Holies forever. Listen, if Jesus is the door, as long as he's alive, we have direct access. Question How long is Jesus going to be alive for? Forever. Jesus Christ is the same today, yesterday, today, and forever. So, on the basis of that, now comes the let us. He says in verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So here's the first call for you and me in the application of all these wonderful truths of what Jesus did for us, who Jesus is. The first thing is, let us draw near. And the idea here is drawing near to God. Um, the New Living Translation um, uh, translates verse 22 this way, let us go right into the presence of God. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 19, the author speaks of this as a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Now, that's an important point. Because what the author is telling us is it is wonderful that we have direct access into the Holy of Holies. But guys, the goal of entering into the Holy of Holies is not just to see the inside of it. I mean, that, that's spectacular in and of itself. I mean, just to be able to like make your way through the veil and enter into this room that only one time a year, one person was allowed to, with the possibility that he could die... And now for us to be able to go in and to see the Ark of the Covenant, to see this place where God's glory would fill, I mean, that in and of itself would be amazing, but that's not the goal. That is not the reason why we want to enter into the Holy of Holies. God himself is the goal. God himself is our aim. This is why we want to enter into the Holy of Holies to be in fellowship with God, he is our ultimate destination. And I'll tell you that is a good word for the modern church today. Because there's a lot of churches out there that they have created an, an environment, a church environment where it is welcoming, but God is not the ultimate destination. For some people the ultimate destination of going to church is great music. Oh, I like that church. Why? Because they have awesome music. And not only do they have like the best musicians, but they got like lights and smoke. And and man, it is like being at a concert. Or other people. I love that church. Why? Because they have such a dynamic speaker. Oh man, when that guy speaks, whether it's 15 minutes or 45 minutes, but man, that guy is so dynamic. He's the personality. He is what makes that church happen. Listen, as great as the music might be, as great as that speaker might be, listen, whatever drew you here this morning to come to church, guys, if God is not your final destination, you are missing the point of what's happening here right now. There are some people that show up on Sundays out of mere obligation. Duty, moralism, religion. There are some people that show up just because of good friendships, coffee, hangout time. Listen, all those things are wonderful, but when the author is talking about the access that we have into the Holy of Holies... It's not about the room. God is the goal. And the question for us is, where's my heart in all of this? And I have, to, I have to ask this myself every Sunday. Every time I prepare to speak in front of a group of people, I have to ask myself, what is the final destination for me? Is it the pulpit? That can't be but the final destination. Is it the sermon? That can't be the final destination. God himself must be the final destination. This is why Christ died. Not just so that we can sing songs or preach sermons. Christ died because he wanted a bride. And everything about that relationship is love and romance. And so the way that we enter into this, he says we must draw near to God first with a true heart. People walk into church and into community with God's people with all sorts of baggage, all sorts of agendas. But if we really understand that God is the final destination of our corporate worship, and even our own personal, private worship, then whatever agendas that you have that is a hindrance or serves as blockage from reaching Christ himself, those things need to be surrendered. A true heart means that there is no insincerity. A true heart means that there is no fakeness. A true heart means that when you come, you are focused more about what is going to be going on in heart worship than outward form. I'm reminded of the words of A.W. Tozer, and I know I shared this a year ago, but I tell you, when I say it, it still stings me. When A.W. Tozer said that Christians don't tell lies, they just sing them in church. Whenever we allow other things to be highly esteemed above and bigger than Christ himself, Whatever your motive, whatever your agenda is, Christ is not the goal. So a true heart reminds me, I've got to do heart work before I show up at church. If you are invited to someone's house for dinner, and this is someone that, that you admire, someone that you highly respect... I'll tell you, there is time and investment that goes into self-preparation because you do not want to show up unprepared, right? I mean, you, you start planning out, what am I going to wear? Like, like, and you start thinking through, like, okay, like who's going to be there? How am I going to conduct myself? There's preparation. Guys, when we show up to church, we are coming into the presence of God. There needs to be heart prep. Well, isn't that, isn't that what the first 30 minutes of singing and worship all, is all about? Guys, the moment w- music starts, that shouldn't be you revving into worship. That should be you already flowing into something that's already happened before you walk through those doors. Why? Because God's that big. God's that worthy. And so the author is reminding us look at the privilege we have to be able to be in the presence of God Himself. So let's enter in with a true heart. Let's, set it, let's, let's just leave the baggage of hypocrisy. Let's leave the baggage of insincerity. Let's, let's leave the baggage of just mere platitudes aside. And let's just come in just the most raw form. And coming with a true heart doesn't mean that we always enter in with a smile on our face. Coming in with a true heart might also mean that you come with eyes just welling up with tears because your life is just falling apart and you just can't make sense of heads or tails and you're just thinking gosh lord this is the best i've got i could put on a fake smile right now but why waste time doing that cuz you see right through it and so lord please be glorified in my in my tears your life might be just neck deep or at least above head, just dealing with just sins in your life that you just feel like you just can't overcome. I mean, they've just gotten to the point that really the best word to describe it is addiction. And you're just so frustrated, like, why can I not just get victory over the sin? And you just feel so dirty and you feel so just messed up. And you sit in your church and you got your fake smile and you're looking at everyone else and you think that everyone else's life is perfect. You're thinking that everyone else's life, they're not struggling with sin like I'm struggling with sin. Listen. Everyone around you, we've all got baggage. We are all people in need of change. What would it look like if people just came in raw form and just said, Lord, I am so messed up. Gosh, Lord, I hate this. I love you, but I'm just so, just so overcome by this, Lord. So, God, can you please be glorified in my mess? Because I'm going to come to you just with all the stained stench of my sin because I know you can make me clean. Guys, there's something liberating when you don't feel the pressure to have to perform for others anymore. But you know what? That also takes community, right? Gospel community where people are going to say, I'm going to love you with all your mess. And if we could just get to a place that we understand that every single one of us here, we're all in mess, then you know what? There's going to be such a sense of freedom where people are going to just be thinking, I can come to Jesus and I know that Jesus, this Jesus people are going to be the tangible hands and feet of Christ and they're going to love on me and I can be the visible hands and feet of Jesus and love on other people. And then you know what's going to happen? Then you're going to have a whole bunch of non-Christians peeking through like, oh my goodness, if Jesus can do that for them, I I just want to go check that out. And you're going to get a whole bunch of non-Christians coming in here saying, can you tell me more about this Jesus, this Jesus that is the hero of this group of people? Coming in with a true heart. But listen, this also includes a full assurance of faith. The reason why having a true heart and a full assurance of faith goes hand in hand is when we're being honest with ourselves, don't we start feeling like I am someone that is not qualified to draw near to God? I mean, usually when we start making a mess of our lives, how often do we start thinking, I can't go to church today? How can I go to church today? I I, I just, I'm blowing it all the time. How many times when we're living in compromise do we just feel so guilty and so ashamed of what we're doing that we stop reading our Bibles, we start praying, we stop praying? Or when communion happens. I wonder if there was anyone here today. You were sitting in the back and you're saying, gosh, I, I'm not qualified to go receive communion today. Because I, I just really, I, I got into this argument. It was a big blowout with my spouse. Or I, I had this big blowout with my kids. And man, I'm I, I just not worthy to receive communion today. Guys, if you recognize that you are in need man, especially if you had the blowout with your spouse, especially if you had the blowout with your kids, especially if you had that moment of compromise and you're feeling conviction, you shouldn't like be thinking, I can't receive communion. You should be running to the communion table because that's the message of the cross. What is clean about the cross? Please, somebody tell me. I mean, if you, if you were able to travel back in time 2,000 years. I had a couple come, come to me uh, 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 about a year ago, and it, they had been visiting the church. It had been about their fourth visit, and they came up to me, and they introduced themselves, and they said, hi, our names are so-and-so, and they said, do you think that God can save our marriage? And I said, well, tell me about your marriage, and it was a mess. And I looked at them, and I said, here's the deal. As messy as you think that your marriage is, there is no scene in the history of humanity that could, that could find equivalence to the mess that was at Calvary. When you think about all the blood and sweat and stench that was there at the cross... And you think about all the profanity and all the blasphemy that was there at the cross. And then on top of that, you heap on that scene all the sin of humanity. It was a cesspool of mess. And people were drowning in it. And Jesus, with the cross, dives into the deep end, into all that mess. And Jesus does something into that big pile of mess that no one else could do. He Brought in redemption. So this is where the faith comes in with the true heart. You might be thinking, who am I? Who am I to enter into the holy of holies? And God says, it's not about asking who am I, but it's looking to the great I am. And I say, come. And you might be thinking, Lord, I feel so unworthy to come, but I believe you. And even though everything about me keeps telling me I can't come, your voice, your word, your promises right now are bigger. And I'm going to come. And when we come with a true heart and the full assurance of faith, then notice what we... Are reminded of that we've got our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water in other words for every person who comes to Jesus with all their mess not trying to hold or keep up a facade you come in with your mess because Jesus said you can you believe that and then you realize that in his presence as God shines his light on you you begin to see who you really are in Christ you've been purified by Jesus Oh, wait a minute, I, I'm dirty. But God said, but look at the cross. You're righteous. You're clean, even purified from the inside out. Your conscience is clean, and because your conscience is clean, now your actions, you have the ability to, to do things that glorify God with your bodies, Listen, draw near to God because we have access and we have an advocate. And then secondly, he says, hold fast, verse 23, the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. The New Living Translation puts it as, let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm for God can be trusted to keep his promise. In other words, Knowing that we have this direct access to God, he's saying, now here's the thing that you have to do stay there. Now, this audience that received this letter, they were contemplating going back to their old life. They were disappointed, they had expectations that weren't realistic expectations about Christianity. They were feeling nostalgic as they could see the sacrifices in the temple happening and they could hear the trumpets blowing, calling the worshipers to worship and they could see all the priests and their garments and their attire and they're feeling a bit nostalgic and so they want to go backwards. Other people, they were being persecuted and they were thinking, is this really worth it? And these people were on the edge of abandoning King Jesus to go back from that life that Jesus saved them from. But here, the author reminds us, keep holding fast to the confession that you made That you have pledged your allegiance to Jesus and the reason why is don't keep looking backwards but look forward because there is a promise that God has given and made for each and every one of us a promise of an eternal inheritance life everlasting glory and keep moving forward and enter into that inheritance Here's the difference between man and animals. And this is where evolution gets it wrong. Evolution teaches us that people are nothing but a higher form of an animal. And that's why they talk about we are the way we are now because of our past. And that's why when you talk to psychiatrists or psychologists that aren't believers, they're constantly emphasizing, well, tell me about your past. But people were created in the image of God, and God put eternity in our hearts. Why? Because we were created not to be merely conditioned by our past, but to be pulled by our future. Think of it this way. When Jesus saved us, Our storyline, our past storyline didn't change, right? The abuse that you experienced, it's still there. It's still a part of your story. The adulteries that were committed, still a part of our story. The theft that happened, still a part of the story. The arrogance, the proud um, way that we we belittle people, all still a part of our story. So what changed? Our future, right? Right? The timeline changed. And so the moment we became a Christian, all of a sudden, this timeline that was leading directly to hell was now transformed, and now there is a timeline, a narrative, where you and I are on the way to heaven. Because since God put eternity in our hearts, when we were going to hell, we were living like people going to hell. But now that we're going to heaven, now we live like people going to heaven. So when you're dealing with people that are struggling now, even though there's some value in trying to make sense of what happened in the past, listen, the only way that they're going to be able to get up and start moving forward is by understanding their future. And it's when we understand what is ahead of us, that is what's keeping us going because that is called hope. Now, some of you might be here And you're right on the fence thinking, really? I mean, is continuing following Jesus, is this really worth it? Because the moment you became a Christian, you discovered that life got harder. Life got more intense. Life got more complicated, especially with family and friends. And you're looking at all your friends around you. You're looking at family around you. And they seem to be more successful than you. They seem to be happier than you. They seem to have an easier life than you. And you're thinking Christianity is just church every Sunday. And Christianity means that I, you know, the only, the only place I could go hang out are like at church potlucks. And, and, and you got this idea of heaven that's like, oh, you hear people say, oh, man, heaven's going to be awesome. Heaven, like we're going to be in God's presence and forever. We're just going to be there just singing and worshiping the Lord. And the guy in the back is just thinking, so you're telling me that heaven is just a forever church service? Are you kidding me? I'm having a tough time right now just with an hour of church service. And you're saying forever, church? I don't know if I want heaven now, but I don't want hell. So I think what I'll do is I'll try to live as much as I can on earth, and then I'll enter into the forever blissfulness of boredom in heaven. And we have this crazy idea that that's what Christianity is when you read the Old Testament prophets and you read the New Testament books about what heaven is like, I mean, there are mountains that are going to be there for us to explore. There are going to be cities that we are going to inhabit. There are food on the table. And sorry vegans, but Isaiah says there's going to be meat on the table. <laughs> this is the life. And listen, what God has in store for us forever far outweighs the temporary in the shadow lands that we're stuck in right now. Some of you need to hear that because some of you are seriously thinking about bailing out of, out of Christianity, and you're here because God wants you to hear this. Do not bail out. Hold fast. Because whatever problems, whatever pains, whatever suffering, whatever tears we're going to be shedding in this side of heaven, it is temporary. But what's ahead of us is forever. And the one who made this promise for us is our advocate. And he who made these promises, the Bible says, is faithful. One last thing and we're done. Stir up Look at verses 24 through 25. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So we have the vertical relationship draw near to God, hold fast. And we have the horizontal relationship with one another. Remain connected. Listen, when Jesus died on the cross, he did not die so that you and I could be redeemed, isolated, individualistic islands. Christ died on the cross to form a brand new community. That's what Ephesians chapter 2 tells us. That Christ established, he gave birth to a new community called the church. And this is people connected to people. Because everything that we are experiencing in our drawing near to God, in our holding fast to Christ, this is where it is practically lived out real time in very tangible ways when you and I are relating in relationship, in fellowship with one another. This is the reason why in the positive... The psalmist in Psalm 122, verse one, I was glad when they said to me, "Let us go to the house of the Lord." But this is also the reason why, in the negative, that Proverbs 18:1, Proverbs 18:1 says, "A man who isolates himself seeks his own desire; he rages against all judgment." We've all heard the illustration, right? If you, get, if you get a bunch of burning coals and you pile them together, you've got heat. There's fire. But if you remove one of those burning coals and you set it off to the side, what happens to that burning coal? It burns out. It's cold. And it produces no heat and it impacts nobody So our strength, our heat, our fire, our impact happens when God's people are together, connected. And it's in this constant togetherness that we're able to be mobilized and to effectively be on mission for King Jesus in reaching our communities, reaching our world for Christ. So what should that look like practically? Because the author doesn't just talk about attending church. He talks about participating in church. He says to stir up. Don't forsake the assembling. That's attending. But stir up. While you're there, stir up. It means to provoke one another. It means that your influence on the people sitting around you when they're with you, they should feel like, man, I am challenged by that person. I just want to love the Lord more. I, I just want to pray more. I just I want to read the Bible more. Provoking could be, hey, did you hear Pastor Michael said so we've got prayer meeting time? Hey, let's, let's go to that tonight. Well, let's, let's do this. We'll, 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 we'll meet for either coffee or dinner. We'll get something. And, and then let's show up for prayer for an hour. And then we can just go hang out. Provoking one another. Listen, in order for all this stuff to happen, here are three words as we reach the final punctuation of this message. Engagement, example, encouragement. Engagement, engage with others. Guys, don't be disengaged at church gatherings. There is something not healthy, especially in a group this size, to come to church week in and week out. And, you've been, and if you've been coming here for six months, a year, or even longer, I mean, I, I recognize a lot of your faces. You were here a year ago when I was speaking. That's awesome. But it's amazing to me how I have met um, people in church. They've been going to the same church for years, and they don't know more than five people in their fellowship. They recognize faces, but beyond that, they don't know their stories. You know, a great way to engage is I I love just going up to people and just asking them, hey, what's your story? It's amazing how people will just open up because they just, someone's actually asking about me. And so, they, so you start listening to their story, and you realize, man, this is, a, this is a gospel, big King Jesus story here. Like, how, no one would have known that. I was at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, and there was this young lady that was sitting there by herself. And so I was going to walk right past her, but the Lord just stopped me, and, and so I just kind of backtracked a bit. And when I went, and I, I went up to her, and I said, hi, my name is John, and she told me her name. And, and I sat down, and I said, what's your story? how did you end up here at the church? And she was telling me the story. She goes, yeah, you know, about a couple years ago, I just came to an end of my, end of my just myself, and, and I decided I'm going to go commit suicide. And so I got in my car, and I had the perfect place in mind that I was going to, this was going to be the last thing I see on earth. I was just going to end it all. And on the way there, I was stopped at a red light, and the car in front of me had a bumper sticker, a radio station, KWVE, 107.9 FM. Well, that's our church's radio station. She goes, what's that? So she dials in to K-Wave. And the guy that was preaching on the radio at that moment is an evangelist by the name of Greg Laurie. So she starts listening to Greg thinking, Wow. This is pretty good. And that one sermon alone stopped her from going to the place that she was going to commit suicide. But she wasn't a Christian yet. But then when she heard the program from Greg Laurie, she had heard, oh, he's going to do a crusade, the Harvest Crusade, and it's going to be in our backyard. Hey, I'm going to go to that. She goes to the crusade. She walks forward to receive Christ. As she receives Christ... She doesn't know that she needs to get connected in church. So for her, church was just listening to the radio. So she started listening to all these programs. And then she hears a guy, a voice, Pastor Chuck Smith. It's like, I like that guy. Where's his church? And as they gave the address, she finds out the church was right across the street from her house. She'd been living across the street. She saw the church. She just didn't know what it was. She had no idea. But the radio programs, the signal was all coming out of that building. So she started attending that church and there she was that Wednesday night sitting there by herself and she had this amazing story and no one would have known her story had no one gone to her and said, what's your story? There are amazing stories like this in this room here. We just need to engage. And we need to be examples be that person that you're serving and you're loving, you're greeting, you're, you're volunteering. You're that person that you're the person that's identified with loving Jesus so much you just want to serve him. Just like Mary of Bethany. Whenever we think of Mary of Bethany, we think of, oh, she's the one who sat at Jesus' feet and anointed his feet with perfume. People like that, they inspire other people to live for Christ. We need more people, not just in books, but we need more faces, more names that are tangible to us because they're right in front of us, people who inspire us to continue with Christ, to love Jesus, to serve him. And you get to be that for others. I'm so glad, I'm so thankful for the balance of of ages here. For you that have been walking with Jesus for 20, 30, 40 years, you get to be the examples for those that are in their teens and in their 20s. And you that are in your teens and 20s and early 30s, you're a constant reminder with your passion for Jesus for the older folks of, yeah, that, I remember those. I remember when I was just being completely reckless for Jesus. There's the engagement, there's the example, and then there's the encouragement. Talk to each other. Encourage one another to pray, to read the Bible, to share the gospel. All this because we have access and we have an advocate. Let me leave you with this. What would Calvary Chapel, Sunshine Coast, which is obviously already a healthy church, that's what makes preaching this so easy. I've preached at places where I've gotten stare backs, where they're like, shut up because we don't want you here. I mean, they, they just look at me like that. I'm here looking at you and I'm thinking, this is fun. But as healthy as this church is, I believe that God wants to do more. And the reason why I believe that is because his desires are God-sized. The best man can do when we say, this is it, this is as much as we can handle, this is as much as we can take, whenever you hit a limit, that's man-size. If we start thinking God-size, then every time we get together, we will always hunger for more. That is the paradox. We are satisfied in Christ. And in that satisfaction, we hunger for more of Christ. Right? How does that work? How how do you mathematically equate? I don't know. But we know it's true. So let me leave you with that. Calvary Chapel, Sunshine Coast. You are so loved by the Father. You have a God in heaven who is cheering you on. Not just corporately, but personally. Not just because of what you look like on the outside, but he knows everything about you on the inside. And the Father is cheering you on. And he has made a way for you to be in constant fellowship with him. And by his spirit, He is saying, listen, kids, draw near to me. I love it when my kids are with me. Hold fast because one day all your troubles are going to cease and I'll bring you home, I promise you. I will bring you home and stir up. I want you to be growing together. I want you to be advancing together. And I will continue to love on you and I will continue to root you, root for you and cheer you on. Amen. So, Father, I pray for each and every person that came today. I pray your blessings. I pray pray your grace. I pray your peace. I pray everything, Lord, that you have for them to be poured out on them in super abounding measures that right now they would feel so loved and so cared for by you. And we pray that all the boundaries, all the limitations that we've created would now just disintegrate. And we pray that you would do in us and through us God-sized things. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you all.